0: climate change is a reality that every single one of us is going to have to deal with there is a universality to it a global truth that in theory should transcend all the things that divide us but it doesn't and it hasn't In large part, I think, because the people who are already facing the impacts of climate change are people of colour and aren't in the countries, living in the countries who have the most power to change our collective future. Climate change is kind of doing a version of what we saw with the pandemic this year. Instead of it being a great equaliser in suffering, it's actually only deepening already existing inequalities. This week's guest is Joycelyn Longdon, the founder of Climate in Color, a platform which brings together conversations and information around the intersection of climate change and race, among many other things, uh, not only in the UK, but around the world. And uh, Joycelyn herself does many things, which we get into during our chat, but also currently includes studying artificial intelligence, AI, uh, in relation to climate change at Cambridge. Welcome to Storyteller, a podcast about how and why we tell stories. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. Storytelling is at the heart of how we shape our lives and how we choose to live them. Climate change, I believe, will be the biggest story of our lifetime. Now, of course, there are certain groups of people who don't want to change and therefore are quite happy to push out the boat on dealing with the disastrous effects of how we've run our world and our economies. But there are also many, many incredible scientists, activists, and community leaders all over the world who are doing the work to get a new story out, one that moves us all to act. I love this conversation because people like Joycelyn are the kind of powerhouses that give me hope. And we are going to need a lot of hope to do the work that we're going to have to do over the next decades for the rest of our lives really and you can feel the intention of her purpose you can hear it in the clarity with which she blends really difficult and and heavy topics like economy race and technology together I'm going to be doing many many episodes on climate change in the show but I'm really glad and honored that I got to do my first one with Joycelyn Before I start, welcome to all the newbies. I got a little shout out on HuffPost for best podcasts of 2020, thanks to my wonderful former colleague, Jason. Um, So if you're new, please do subscribe to the podcast um, wherever you listen to them. Um, Follow on Spotify and uh, subscribe on Apple. And um, if you are on Apple, please do leave a rating and review. It's very annoying, I know I ask every week, but it does make a big difference to helping people find the show. And if you're not a follow or subscribe kind of vibe, uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or and Instagram. Just search for Lisa Golden Storyteller and the accounts will come up. But mostly thank you always for your support. Now onto my conversation with Joycelyn Longden. And thank you so much for coming on Storyteller today. So I like to start the podcast by asking um, everyone if they consider themselves storytellers.
1: Mm. Yes, I mean, I would consider myself a storyteller. And I guess maybe to the surprise of many people, just because of the degree I do, I am really quite passionate about writing and about stories and about reading that's been something that's ingrained in me since I was a child and has really been an escape for me Mm -hmm. Um, and so whether it's like even the way I journal is telling a story it's like um, writing a book or writing some sort of novel about my own life I'm writing a story just by doing things every day and at some point either I'm going to tell it back to someone or someone might tell it for me um I feel like every day that I'm living is part of telling this story of my life I guess yeah
0: I love that. I love that. It's beautiful, so I mean, could you start us off? I was just thinking this um this morning, like what was your journey into your interest around climate change activism um like was there a particular moment or something that you saw that sort of struck you and got you on this path,
1: or was it sort of gradual? It was really gradual, and I guess for me it it's such a complex journey um so growing up. I grew up in London, but the part of London that I grew up in was quite leafy, and I did spend quite a lot of time outside. I also did a lot of sports, so I was you know cross-country and things like that. So I, I did have quite a good connection with nature. Um, and really, I went on a holiday to Ireland with my parents and my sisters, and seeing nature there, I was just blown away. I just was like, this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. Um, And so my whole, like, even though it it might not have been a consciousness about the climate per se, I really did have this connection to nature that was always underpinning what came later. So at 16, I went to my first environmental march in London Um, and it wasn't a definitive moment just because of that background of loving nature. it it was kind of like a no-brainer to go but and you know I went vegan and and I learned more about the environment through like your food choices Um, and that decision I took quite strongly at the time my kind of uh, decisions now a bit different but those were the few things in my teens that really got me engaged I guess with understanding about the environment but at that point was probably when I started to actually move away from the climate movement experience in the movement was quite I didn't feel like the messaging resonated with me at the time there was a huge focus on animals and saving the animals and like not that I don't care about saving the animals but at the same time I'm seeing like you know kids in London getting shot and um Black boys being killed disproportionately in, uh, in, in mental custody or police custody. And so for me, I felt like I wasn't represented in the issues that people were talking about and that there were much more important issues that I needed to be involved with. You know, I'm growing up as a working class black person in the UK. There were a few issues that yeah. directly impact my life um, where the messaging around like green consumerism and save the animals just didn't resonate with me and i thought like, if this is what the environmental yeah. movement is i guess it's just not for me and i'm i funneled my yeah. um sort of activism in more of the space of racial equality and so yeah. i spent you know three years at uni working a lot with black creators people of color really um pushing on that front of racial equality, um, especially racial equality in, in the arts um, and in the creative industry. But then my reading and conversations with various people, lots of different friends, I went to lots of different reading groups. I started to realise that actually a lot of racial inequality stems from climate what the climate crisis and climate inequality, the the difference in how that and groups of people experience or are exposed to climate risks. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is my issue completely.
0: Joycelyn described a moment to me where she made the connection between the roots of the climate crisis to colonialism, bringing these two fundamentally important issues together in her life. This kind of global thinking that allows us to highlight how interconnected and impactful the actions of the Global North have been, this kind of thinking is historically fairly new. How we understand things is radically altering, radically becoming more nuanced and complicated. I find this growing complexity dazzling, enriching. It's so exciting. To be reminded yet again that the arc of history is not just one straight line with one protagonist and one victim and one bad guy, but millions of threads that are all pushing and pulling and weaving. It's amazing. Um, It's also why I really badly flubbed my next question. (laughs) But thankfully, Joycelyn artfully expressed what I was struggling to put my finger on. I think also just as a disclaimer for both of us this is obviously a massive issue and we're not going to cover all of it you know <laughs> in a in a 45 minute conversation but I think I was thinking a lot about like the, the, the story of climate change is that there's a sort of generally white north that has made its wealth off a lot of destruction of the environment now we're in this position where we're trying to reverse or just even stop I think still obviously some of this damage and um, people of color and the global south are the people who are going to, who are currently and will continue to pay the biggest price for this damage. So, um where do you think people can start with and undis- just yeah. like where should they look for these intersections? Where should they see it? Like you sort of mentioned it like in cities where areas yeah. where there's bad air pollution and where where do you see the intersections? Like where where do the inter- where do you find the most interesting intersections of these two things?
1: Um I mean, for me, I see the intersections in absolutely everything. So it's hard to say like Mm. one is more important than the other. But the question of Mm. how do people begin to see these intersections or how can they ensure that they're not part of these intersections of, I guess, destruction and oppression of peoples and the environment. um, I think there are two main things. One is more on the local level. So where I live, if I live in a nice leafy area in, you know, 10 or 20 mile radius of me, where are the areas that are not as nice as this? Where are the areas that are more built up? Where are the areas that are more polluted? Where are the areas that have more concrete and less greenery? Okay, now who are living, Who who's living in those areas? And is there a discrepancy between my area and that area? The areas where there is easier access to nature, are the areas that are more white. Um and I'm currently mm. living in one of those areas now. I can literally get into the woodlands in two minutes. Um and there are other areas of Cambridge which have kind of been cut off from that sort of access and they are home to either the poorest people in Cambridge or people of colour in Cambridge. So those are really simple things to see. That's one of my intersections mm-hmm. of um of climate justice and, and or climate inequality and racial inequality. The other is to keep an eye on the supply chains. And, and this is a big thing, not just for consumers, but for businesses to start doing and for re- researchers to start looking into. Because you might buy something that you think is harmless, but actually if you track it back, someone, someone mm. is paying for it.
0: Uh, yeah yeah i don't know did you see any of that um uh sorry what's that brand it's not boohoo the other one um yeah i mean i saw some of that stuff yesterday with black friday that just blew my mind i could you know it like that's crazy to me that people will buy something for like 5p and not think that where that's coming
1: well, i think that that's another important thing that behind pretty much everything we buy um there is a brown or black person yeah, uh, yeah who is behind it whether it's our clothes whether it's our food um someone is paying for it mm. and it's being cognizant that those things are real and not being ignorant to the fact that there will be suffering behind a lot of the things that we use on a daily basis yeah yeah and just that cognizance is important yeah even if not in a position to take any direct action Mm. being aware will mean that you're more conscious about the things that you purchase or the things that you put your money into Mm.
0: Mm. yeah like the whole voting with your money thing but so i mean then i think that brings us to an interesting place which is something that i really struggle with and i think a lot of people do is this i call it like the moral complicity of capitalism which is sort of at every turn you are um it's almost impossible to take a step forward, right. Without engaging in a system that is probably that is hurting other people. So mm. how do you see the role or how do you manage the role? I guess maybe even inside of yourself of like the um, choices of the individual versus the yeah. structure,
1: right. And how the structure pushes and pulls. Um, so yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I have probably a different outlook to most. I don't know. Um, I. Obviously, individual action is important. Like, that's obvious. But I think that it's been used, the consumer has been used as a scapegoat to um, redistribute responsibility for the issues that we are having today. Mm. We go all the way back to probably the most gross uh, uh, implementations of capitalism and colonialism on the foundations of climate. Uh, we can look at, at at the colonial period and that was an expedition for businesses and governments it wasn't an expedition of individuals mm. it was of you know businesses and governments seven you know there are there are 100 companies that are responsible for 71% of the emissions mm. so first before we talk about individual and corporations we just need to look at who it is just mm. this Uh, crisis we talk about anthropogenic change we humans yes it's us humans but who Mm. because when you ask people if you were to ask people whether they want to use a petrol car or they want to use an electric car most people would get an electric car if one it was cheap enough to use yeah yeah people wouldn't want to use things that are polluting yeah there was an option for them so I think this thing of scapegoating and saying, "Oh, there's the demand. There's demand. People want to buy these things." is an issue. Mm. Yes, there's a demand for affordable clothing. Yes, there's a demand for energy, but the consumer doesn't create the energy source or doesn't create the clothes. Mm. They are here to buy it, and it and it is uh, it it's a it's a it's a misconception or a complete outright lie to say that it's. The, the consumer who is um who is trying to mold this demand for uh, exploitative extractive and oppressive materials mm. on the on the individual side though i think everything needs to be taken in terms of what privilege you have and the more privilege that you have the more responsibility you do have to make better decisions i personally don't really make decisions from a solely climate perspective. I like to think more in a humanitarian perspective. Mm. So um, growing up on quite a small budget, I feel inclined to not believe people who are more privileged than me when they say that they can't take certain actions. Mm. I don't shop from Amazon and I haven't shopped from Amazon for the last eight months. And I took that conscious step because I don't want to be involved in overconsumption mm. i don't want to have any tie to overworked factory workers i don't want to engage in such a blatant um misuse of power yeah amazon also supports surveillance culture of black people so looking mm. at my values in a humanitarian sense that is what has um, managed that mm. decision mm. those decisions also come out in other ways like not buying from fast fashion etc and if I'm honest I think that those decisions are so easy to make that I don't think the individual first corporation conversation should even really come in there because it's just (laughs) like well I mean anyone can choose not to shop at um boohoo like it's not taking away some sort of like
0: like you need know that you <laughs> yeah no i yeah, agree
1: exactly. yeah I think that when where those conversations come can come in now are you know things about energy if your only energy provider is a natural gas provider you really can't afford anymore then that's a different conversation i'm not really here to i'm not here to kind of um, tell people what to do mm. but i think that there are some really clear actions that people can take yeah that take a little bit more thought for example i won't buy books from big booksellers yeah. you know there are just things that it's like you it's such an easy change to make yeah but you're actually making a big difference on people's lives what i think that people should keep in mind though is that collective power has is overlooked and shouldn't be taken for granted things like getting together and writing letters to your mp motivating your families to write letters together to MPs to um, vote and vote in ways in which uh, show your respect or show where your morals lie, I think is really important. And so I think that, yes, individual actions from a consumer perspective and from a green consumer perspective I really have no interest in. I think that there's a lot to be said for action and for education.
0: That moral complicity is something I've really struggled with in my life, and it's something that I want to spend more time exploring in 2021. But while I'm sitting here struggling to even cut down meat in my diet, Joycelyn is taking her passions and interests and intellect to an incredibly important topic and in such a forward-thinking way. I asked her about her current studies at Cambridge. Then, I mean, I'd love to chat a bit about what you're studying because I think it got me excited because I think quite often, and especially during the pandemic when we've had to deal with so much maybe for me, much more tech time than I'm comfortable with. And um, seeing how these things are, are built and are, if they are built predominantly by white men in Silicon Valley, how that out view of the world has just trickled into so many of our systems and so many of the tools that we use and and all this stuff. So could you just tell me a bit about um, your studies with AI um, and climate
1: change? Yeah I have a really interesting relationship with AI and with technology and I guess I'll just give some context about my character first uh, so that what I say after makes sense. Um, I am a very kind of traditional romantic spiritual person and I love tradition. I love learning about the history of my people and the history of other cultures. And I'm very spiritual, which isn't necessarily um, <laughs> normal for a technologist or an AI technician. So I'm coming at this from a very different perspective than I guess most of the people who are undertaking this sort of research or this sort of work. And it is completely right that this space has been dominated by the minds of basically white men. Um, And white men who don't have the consideration for a world outside of technology. So most of the thinking in the AI space comes from a quite an arrogant position. And that arrogance comes from We don't need to know what underlies this phenomena. We just need enough data to show us how it works. So if we're going to look at um, the impact of more cars on the road to uh, air pollution, we might not necessarily need to know what area it is. We don't need to know what car it is. We don't need to know how... The different particles react in the atmosphere we don't need to know any of that all we need to know is the data Hmm. and i think this becomes increasingly dangerous when we're talking about climate we obviously know that it's really dangerous already through social media through marketing through surveillance i mean the list is endless of the ways in which um AI can be harmful but actually it's really interesting Um, I have a really great supervisor who uh, works at the intersection of computer science and uh, human interaction and sociology and and my co-supervisor is also a a leading sociologist and it makes me so happy to be in this space and to feel like I'm a little bit in the position of disrupting this space because when you really think about it and this is in a paper that my supervisor wrote that we attribute all of this to the machine we attribute all of this um harm to the machine and we also attribute all of this intelligence to the machine but the way ai works i guess if you're talking about supervised learning which is where you take data in that is already labeled and you train the machine on that Mm. labeled data so that it can then view unlabeled data and then label it Mm. a human labels that data the computer doesn't know what it is if you say that this is a black person this is a white person, this is an Indian person this is a Chinese person a human has labelled those Mm. other humans Mm. not the computer Yeah. the computer is literally just taking in that information Mm. so the human has actually a lot to do with the computer system Mm. it's not just Some obscure machine making decisions.
0: Yeah,
1: machine is really feeding off of the input from the human. Yeah, and then that starts making quite interesting conversations about where these biases come from, where the power structures come from, and actually what change can be made. And I had a conversation on my Instagram live this week with um an indigenous activist and and technologist, and we had an amazing conversation about indigeneity and artificial intelligence and there are a few other groups there's indigenous ai which you can look up as well and this is more of the conversation that i'm trying to tap into of ancient wisdom
0: mm-hmm. as
1: artificial Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Not as artificial intelligence that is being seen today as the machine, but as intelligence that is greater than uh maybe our usual kind of um kind of understanding of what knowledge is. is yeah. Uh, the understanding of kind of coupling with nature, humans' ability to couple with nature and transfer data mm. in different You can also look at a documentary by the La Foundation. They spent time with 12 Indigenous leaders from around the world who came together at a UN building to download, and I'm inverted (laughs) on this, download the information from the universe and from nature um, as a form of artificial intelligence. And so if the human really is the centre of artificial intelligence, then the question is, which humans are allowed to programme? Yeah human knowledge systems are allowed to be embedded in these algorithms? And how can that then be used for local and global good? And actually Joyce, uh, who I was speaking to early in the week, the indigenous um, activist was talking about global. So how can we merge that global and local knowledge? And so this is really the realm that I'm coming at it in. It's not the realm that I'm being taught at. Of course, I have to be taught in a very traditional way whilst I'm being taught in a very traditional mathematical computational way my mind is also I'm also kind of adding a little bit of work going to sociology lectures and readings um and understanding this other side so that in the end hopefully next year when my PhD starts the two can be merged together Mm. and so I guess while whilst my colleagues are looking to work with big transnational corporations and using AI to protect capital and to protect businesses through uh, climate observations. I'm looking at how we can empower communities, how technology can become community owned, how solutions can become community owned through technology Mm -hmm. and through the merging of that capability and also indigenous knowledge and indigenous. I just want to caveat here is not just Native American. Hmm. Uh, it's indigenous anyone who's indigenous to place yeah. around the world and there are indigenous people to place all over the world.
0: Yeah, I love that. That makes me so excited just to hear. Do you know? Uh, that? Yeah, that made like it's because I think <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's to use the tools that have are uh, transforming our life for something that's not just um profit 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 you know Extract. yeah Extract. And it's just so wonderful yeah. to think yeah so that's really exciting
1: um it's exciting but it's also daunting because yeah. um there are very there's a very specific type of mindset in the AI space mm, yeah um and I'm doing something I guess that's not I'm not supposed to be doing what I'm doing yeah. um And, you know, when you're sitting in rooms where in response to worries about the arrogance in AI, the response is that you can't be arrogant if you're right, Mm. then that's where you you know that a lot of work needs to be done.
0: Oh man, oh dear, well. I asked Joycelyn if she was hopeful for a world after COVID. A world that had shown us some pretty terrible things and some terrible realities, but had also kind of shown us what you can do when the motivation is there, such as housing homeless people, you know, access to healthcare, stopping the economy, things like that. I think um, I had. Um, do you know actually? Maybe do you know Lama Rod Owens at all? He's a he's yeah, a Tibetan. Um, he's a Tibetan Lama um, based in the US, um, and I had him on the podcast last week. And he he's he's yeah he's such a fascinating character, and he was talking a lot about sort of um, we were talking sort of post U.S. election um, mm. activism and whether you can use rage to fuel activism. Um, but he also just made you know, I think we were talking about how we are in such a disruptive time and um out of every disruption there is rebuilding and as much as mm-hmm. it won't be perfect because we're still very it's still very much unequal, there's a chance at this point in history more than there's ever been before for 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 different people to take up those mantles of how things are built and how things are um going to develop after this disruption um and i know i mean i don't want to be uh, naive about it it'll still probably be majority because i mean obviously in the in the wake of a destruction there's certain people who have still got their power and have got their resources but I'm trying to like the hopeful side of me <laughs> is like there's there's a more of a chance than ever before in history to actually build something that works rather than um
1: destructs totally i think I think it's interesting because I've been in a lot of. Being behind the scenes in the climate research space opens you up to things you never thought Mm. you could see. Mm. And the people in power in this space are not making those type of decisions. Mm. So, of course, I am optimistic because i have to be yeah Yeah. and i am motivated by rage that's the only reason i'm here (laughs) you know i don't have any career insights for this i i i I really and truly i'm I'm not here for a job i'm not doing this study for some future position i'm doing this study because i care about it and i don't know what action i can take so this is the action i'm going to take Mm. but I think that a lot of this rebuilding will actually come from disconnecting and disconnecting from those structures.
0: Mm.
1: So if we look at the fact that Nigeria, 90% of its software is imported from the US, there needs to be a disconnection. There needs to be a disconnection and before that rebuilding, because otherwise we won't have the... um, the scale that's needed and necessary for that change to be made. I'm not really of the opinion that the people who are in the positions of power now are the ones who can facilitate that change yeah, because they don't have that understanding Mm. and the change that they will make will never be for the community. Only the community can make the decisions around that change. Mm. And so it's about engaging that community, motivating that community and moving that community to disconnect and disengage with systems of oppression that they are in or under or contribute to yeah Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in order for that amazing change to be made yeah and I think that we need examples there aren't examples Hmm. in this field specifically obviously there are examples in other fields but there aren't enough examples in this field and so those need to be built up in order for people to go actually i don't have to get a job at google i can do this instead. Yeah. Because the, the issue is that if Google goes and puts an AI headquarters in Ghana, which is where my parents are from, that then attracts not only the best technologists in Ghana, but the best technologists in Nigeria, the best technologists in Ethiopia and Sudan and Kenya, wherever, because that's it's going to draw them in. It's like mm-hmm. a drain on the country. Yeah. So if they're all in Google, then where are the amazing technologists for the community-led yeah. and the local-led uh, initiatives? Mm-hmm. We need to keep that in mind as well, that there is really a grip from the multinational companies and from the big governments, yeah. and that needs to be rewritten. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the disconnection needs to happen before we can actually move to a place where that amazing transformative
0: change can happen yeah it's so interesting that you say that because I'm, I'm from South Africa and that's also like if I think back now on how consulting firms specifically that always makes me think just like people who had so much promise and I think you know whatever people make the decisions as they need to but I mean the fact that they would come to like schools and universities and like target the best and the brightest to come and do that kind of work and i mean mckinsey just recently gone to huge trouble in south africa for corruption and stuff so i'm just you know and i just think yeah if if that wasn't the paradigm of success it w- they wouldn't have sucked so many resources away from like other places where it could have been used um yeah i mean it's not with the
1: people themselves i mean it you 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 especially coming from a working class background mm. you want to make something of yourself yeah. you want to become you don't want to continue being in a position where you have to worry all the time yeah yeah. I don't yeah. want to see my loved ones working for jobs mm. of course I don't yeah so I want to make those decisions that mean I can move out of that economic frame mm, yeah, of and so it's not on the individual yeah. because you need to make the decisions that can get them out of Situations that are oppressive. Yeah,
0: Um, but also the whole. Yeah, but also I guess also the whole cult. If the whole culture is telling you that's what success looks like, you can't expect a seventeen-year-old to turn around and be like, actually,
1: (laughs) yeah. And it's interesting how these all link with our climate crisis today, Mm -hmm. because our our our. Our um, pillars of success are based on capital and are based on accruing not only wealth, but on accruing material things. Mm. So you're more successful because you have a better job, which means you have more money, you have more power, you can buy more things, you have more buying power, more spending power. You can buy a bigger house, you can buy a car, you can buy X, Y and Z and that's our... Mm that's our kind of benchmark for success which fits exactly into our benchmark for climate destruction.
0: yeah um, yeah. So yeah, interesting. it's interesting.
1: Yeah. It is interesting.
0: Well, I just want to be mindful of your time because um uh, it's a few minutes before you have to go. So um mm-hmm. I guess back to you as an individual as a storyteller this is this is going to I don't know how to say it, say this out of sounding like weird and patronizing but you do so much like how could you just um give the audience like an overview I mean you have your newsletter, you've got um, climate and colour, you're studying, like, there's a lot going on. Can you, like, just tell us a bit about um, the projects that you're working on and, like, how you fit it all in?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of projects going on right now. So I started... So my first project, the first one I was talking about, uh, about um, diversifying the creative industry, that's Black on Black, and that's a project I've had for three years. And um, I've slowed that right down. All I'm doing now is working with agencies on a more recruiting basis to get more people of colour into the behind the scenes of the creative space. Because I think companies for too long have just relied on uh, casting black and brown people, but their whole team is white behind the scenes. So that's one project. Then Climate in Colour I started in, this, in, in April and I didn't really expect it to blow up uh, the way that it did. Um, also I did not expect to get into Cambridge and so when I started Climate in Colour I didn't know I'd have two massive things to be working on yeah. in the winter because I thought that I wasn't going to get into my degree and I also had no plans for Climate in Colour to become what it has become. So Climate in Colour has a lot going on. It's got we've got a monthly newsletter and weekly newsletter. I have the Patreon community and in the Patreon community we have um, a monthly essay that I write. We have a monthly podcast with someone who is uh, an interesting figure in our monthly theme. Our monthly theme is determined by our monthly reading and so I'm working with our community to make academic papers and academic reading more accessible. So we read academic papers, I provide a summary um, of the paper, I essentially like rewrite the paper in like bullet points, provide definitions um, and then we have a meeting and talk about um, how accessible the paper was and also the contents of the paper and we also have a monthly reflections in the community and I wouldn't really be able to do the community without the help of my lovely community manager Jade, Uh, Jade if you're listening thank you, (laughs) Um, and then we have the Instagram and I work with designers, but I do all the research for Instagram. There's lots of stuff going on there. Mm. Um, and then my degree, yes, it's very intense. Um, it's probably been the most intense period of my life. Um, I've probably learned more in two and a half months than I've learned in like a year at my undergrad. Um, Cambridge is a really intense university. Um, and we've kind of been dunked into the deep end so my course is kind of weird in the fact that it's uh we audit lectures from other disciplines um mm-hmm. so you know I, my undergraduate is in astrophysics I've never done I, you know I've done computing but not in the same way that an engineer or a computer science student would have done and we're going straight into fourth year uh, material <laughs> from someone who hasn't <laughs> even done the first I yeah. <laughs> engineering I know that my background obviously lends itself to being able to get get through the maths but it it has been very intense lots of projects lots of things to get used to Um, I'm also working with Oxford University on the DTP for environmental research in order to um, provide more opportunities for not just BIPOC students but for students from disadvantaged backgrounds that is carers people who have been in care people from uh poorer neighborhoods so there are three uh scholarships that we're trying to fill and I'm working with Oxford University on that and then there's one last uh uh organization I'm working with that I can't actually talk about but it's uh, a community organized sort of case um climate case that I'm that I'm working on as well so oh. those are all Mine. <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot but it's
0: amazing and like I just um I mean I found you through climate and color and it's just such an amazing resource and yeah I just I think um I don't know it just it, it, it gives me a lot of hope like I, I just I it's amazes me how hard people like yourself work and it just gives it gives me a lot of hope that there's that that as great as the uh, challenges ahead of us are that there's people like you they're working on so thank you and I'll link um, I'll link to all of those things in the show notes so if anyone wants to just click through they can just check it out straight away Um, oh, sure. but yeah thank you so much for coming on Storyteller I really appreciate
1: it. Thank for having me and actually if, if anyone does want to take some time to be inspired and to feel optimistic I would read the Drawdown Review 2020 because that gave me a lot of just optimism about the many ways that we're going to tackle this climate crisis. Amazing. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay, great. I'll link it. I'll link it. <laughs> Thanks again to Joycelyn. You can find the links to everything she's mentioned in the show notes, and definitely go check out Climate and Color. Um, um, I follow. That's how I found Joycelyn's through um, through Instagram, and yeah it's a beautiful account like they've, there's a lot of thought and care and research and amazing things that go into it and also sign up for her newsletter it's really um it's such a like useful guide especially if you like me I'm not in that world I'm, I'm not in any activist groups anything like that so it's a really good condensation of the different topics and like research and just things that are going on in that world it's really um good to catch up on Thank you to everyone who shared their stories with me after last week's episode on grief. It was a really vulnerable show, but one with a lot of heart. So it meant a lot to me that people were moved by the conversation and found some solace in it. So again, please do message me your thoughts and your feedback. It really does keep me going in this lonely business of making a podcast. As usual, please email me any thoughts or questions you have at... um, Storytellerpod at gmail.com and on social media, just search Storyteller Podcast. And my name, Lisa Golden, uh, G O L D E N, to find me on Instagram and Twitter. Next week is the last episode of the season. I don't even have an interview. I'm just, it's just going to be me. And I'm going to give you a little wrap on the year and what the plans are for, for next year and season two, which will be coming to you in January. So until next time.